morning again, everybody. Let's pray together, shall we? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you are majestic in your works and in your ways. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we worship you. Father, we see that in your Son, Jesus, he is the firstborn of all creation, that by him and for him all things were created, and in him all things are sustained or held together. He is the ruler over powers and dominions and authorities, and that he chooses to use that authority for an incredible reconciling work between God and man through his sacrifice on the cross. And we worship him. Father, we know that there is a right way to live this life, and we are trying to figure out what it is. We want to please you. We want to know you and to know your ways. And so we pray that during our moments together this morning that are remaining, that you would help us, that you'd speak to us through your scriptures, that you would encourage your people here, and that the result would be a firm resolve to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You only get one life. But if you live it right, one is enough. That is a quote that's been tossed around for some decades now. And when you really think about it, and you think about the implications of it, and you think about the struggle that we have as we walk through this life, it's got some pretty serious weight behind it. You only get one life. But if you live it right, one is enough. I'm sure you've met many people, as I have, that have gone through life and wished that they had a do-over, that they could do it all over again. This last year, I was sitting with someone who was dying. She was in her late 70s or early 80s. She had suffered from dementia for some time, and now her cancer had returned. She spent most of her days sleeping in bed, and while she was awake, she had some moments of lucidity and some where she wasn't so lucid. And I sat with her during one of those moments of lucidity and we talked very plainly. She knew she was dying. And she recounted to me many of the joys of life. We talked about her family vacations. We talked about her kids. We talked about her friends. We laughed together as she told funny stories. She had a wonderful sarcastic sense to her, which I very much appreciated. But her smile turned and before you know it she slowly started to cry and her crying then turned to weeping as she confessed to me her pastor that she had been terribly mean to a number of people in her life and she had been but she didn't want to be remembered as someone who was mean she didn't want to hurt people she didn't want to be thought of as someone who was nasty, and as she sat there on her deathbed, she expressed to me her desire to go back and to do it all over again. But it was too late. And two days later, she died. 
Others of us in midlife look through our lives, and if you have any level of self-examination, you say to yourself, man, that was a mistake that I made. (laughs) Or, oh boy, I wish I could have those four years of college back and do that a little differently. Or we think about an action, an activity, a season, and we say, oh, if I could only have a do-over there, I would do it so differently. And even though life is indeed filled with second and third and fourth chances, and this is one of the wonderful things about God is that he gives us so many chances, there's still a very real sense in which we can't buy back the time, can we? That, That time is really gone. We can't actually do it over again. But what if there was a way? What if there was a way to make sure that we didn't waste any more time? What if there was a way to ensure that we would get to the end of our life happy and full and fulfilled and satisfied with the one and only life that we've had? After all, I mean, you only get one life. But if you live it right, one is enough. I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the book of Colossians. You can find Colossians chapter 2 on page 984 of that pew Bible in front of you. And today we continue this series in the book of Colossians that we're calling Supremacy. And we've seen up to this point in the beginning of Colossians, number one, a God who changes us and is ever changing us more into his likeness. And we talked about some of the implications for sort of healthy, godly change at Old North Church. We saw a picture of Jesus who is supreme over all creation and as a result of his supremacy that we really have to reckon with our submission and our following of him or the fact that we would rebel against him. But there's not a lot of neutral ground in the middle. And then last week we talked about how the result of Jesus being supreme, of us growing in him, is found in that we would be presented mature before God. And we talked about some of that maturing activity and what that looks like. Today, the Apostle Paul gets to the section of the book where he talks about our life, just very plainly. There's some struggles, there's some temptations, there's some encouragements. And what you see in this text, I think... is a truth that, if adopted and sustained, help us to take advantage of the one life that we have. Are you there? Colossians chapter 2. Follow with me at verse 6 through 15. This is what he says. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him 
through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by the canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So look with me. Keep your head down in your Bible. Right away at verses 6 and 7, we see sort of the main thrust of this passage. We would describe it summarily like this. Very simply, live for him. Live for Jesus. He says in verse 6, there's no wasting time. He gets right to the point. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught so look, he says, begins with just as you received Christ. He's clearly talking to Christians here. He's talking to a group of people who have received him. God has given them the gift of his grace. He's offered it through his son, Jesus. And to be a Christian, you need to know this, means very simply that you receive this gift of grace. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen by association. You actually need to receive it in faith. Now, I know many of us in the room have received Christ in faith. Some of us maybe have not. And I just want to say to you who have not, what are you waiting for? I mean, the greatest gift that you could possibly have from the greatest giver, and he's offering it to you, you have to receive it. And if you don't know how to do that, or you haven't done it and you want to, I would encourage you, don't wait any longer than today. Come talk to me after church up here or one of our other pastors. We would love to talk to you about how to receive Christ in faith. It's important to note that he's talking to Christians here. And he encourages them, actually commands them, to walk in him. Part one was you received him. Part two is that you walk in him. Sort of a simple picture, isn't it? You walk through life. All of us walk through life, through years and months and stages. And there's multiple ways you could walk. He says walk in him. The connotation is one that's ongoing and directional in its nature. It's one in which he is the one doing the leading. He doesn't say Jesus walks in you. <laughs> you walk in him. He is the one charting the course. How do we walk in him? Well... He gives some descriptions. The manner in which you walk is one as one who is rooted, one who is built up, one who is established. The sequence of metaphors that are very familiar to us. A person who is rooted is one who has a deep base, right, that gets nutrients. A rooted tree, a deeply rooted tree, is one that doesn't waver in the storm or doesn't fall over. It's lasting. It's growing. It's healthy. It's strong. Likewise, one who is built up as this image, a building metaphor, strong foundation. And you, because you have a strong foundation, the building of your life continues to grow and get bigger and get bigger. If the foundation is weak, the building crumbles. If the foundation is weak, 
Your office sinks into the ground, much like my office is sinking into the ground right down the office wing of Old North Church. But if the foundation is strong, your life can be ever-growing and being built up. And when that happens, you become established. When deep roots take hold, when there's a strong foundation that is built on, you become someone who is established. To be established is to be long-standing, to last through time and difficulty. Think about it with me. An established company is one that has lasted for years and had various levels of success, even through difficult seasons, but they're still around. They're still here. They're still functioning and growing and healthy. An established person in a community is one that has a broad reputation. They've been here for a while. We know who they are. We know what they're about. They're established. And Paul is saying that his desire is for you to walk in Christ, that you would be established in your faith. Because here's the gist. There's a lot of different things that you could live for. There's a lot of different things that you could devote your life to. But sometimes the simple act of walking one step at a time in him, doing the next right thing, doing the next simple obedience, even when it doesn't look right or feel right or it's too hard, doing what you know to be true in the Lord Jesus is how you become established over the long haul. I think of the words of C.S. Lewis, as he once said, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something that is going to take the whole of you. Or John Wesley, who said, give me 100 men who love nothing but God, hate nothing but evil, and know nothing but Jesus Christ, and I will change the world. It sounds obvious, doesn't it? Jesus is supreme, and so walk in him. You made a decision for Christ some years ago, maybe some weeks ago, maybe a couple of days ago. You realize he's your Lord, he's your Savior, he's the one that's forgiven you, he's given you everything you need, so walk in him. Sounds obvious, right? Is it that simple? Is it really that simple? No. <laughs> Because the problem behind this passage, and the problem that so many of us will easily relate to, is this. Even after someone receives Christ as their Savior, there are things in this world that grab our gaze, that seek our affections, that vie to be the dominating reality by which we live our lives. The temptation, even for Christians, is to say, I know who God is, I know his son Jesus, but I'm going to keep him over here. I'm going to keep Jesus as a spiritual appendage on my life and continue to live the way that I want or the way that will make me feel good or the way that makes me look good. And periodically when I need him, I'll continue to go back there to this spiritual appendage I have rather than ongoing, active, walking in him, which has a connotation that he is the dominating reality 
of your life. This is a temptation for the Colossian church, and it is a temptation for us, no doubt. Look at how this danger is presented in verse 8. He says this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's a sense in which the people here, a number of them, are actually being taken captive through these temptations. Other philosophies, which would be, a, we might just summarize saying a framework for living, and even other spirits. Now it's largely believed that in this Colossian church there are a number of different teachings and heresies going on, including when you think about that phrase, it's really unique, elemental spirits, I have to pause for a second and say, what on earth is he talking about? But remember, in the ancient world, it was very common for people to take the core elements of existence, earth, wind, fire, water, and say there's a God, a deity, behind each one of those things, and therefore we should worship them. And therefore, we should even consider reorganizing our life around these really core needs that we have in worship of them. And you can almost feel the tension. Someone comes to faith in Jesus. They follow him for a little while. Life gets hard. Maybe their crops don't grow. Maybe they lose their job. Their desires aren't being met the way that they want them to be met. Does this sound like anybody you might know? And so they begin to look elsewhere. They begin to seek someone or something that might give them what they want or what they need. And as a result, they become captive to another way of life. Or maybe they're just bored. Maybe they expected one type of ongoing heightened spiritual experience when they put their faith in Jesus, but they came to realize that a life, a faithful life with God is not just all mountaintop experiences. Most of it, the vast majority of it, is good, slow, steady plodding and faithfulness and participating in the work of God. Maybe they wanted something more, so they're bored, and so they look to somebody or someplace else as a framework for life, but they keep Jesus over here as a spiritual appendage. When they need him, they can always go back to him. And we say to ourselves, those foolish people in the ancient world with their elemental spirits, I mean, who believes that there is a God of wind and fire and water and earth? Or who would ever fall prey to such foolish philosophies like that? But when you start to consider it closely, we're not that far away. And many of us are regularly tempted to dabble in such frameworks for our lives. I mean, think about it with me. Life gets hard. Things don't go the way that we want them to go. And so we're tempted to look elsewhere. Or maybe we become bored. I thought this whole Jesus thing was going to be much more exciting to me than it actually is. And so I need to find something else that will provide me that emotional excitement that I want. 
Or maybe we fall prey to subtle forms of what we would call hedonism. That's a philosophy of life. Doing whatever feels good in the moment or organizing our lives in the pursuit of whatever whatever the next fun thing is. We live in an incredibly entertainment-driven society. And many of us probably really try to get through our week just to get to the next fun thing, whatever it might be. For some of us, maybe it's hyper-naturalism or environmentalism where we care very deeply about this planet, but what happens is that our primary concern in life begins to revolve around the creation instead of the creator. Maybe it's a loose approach to sexuality. It's okay if I do certain things. Or maybe it's not an approach for me. It's not my own sexual actions, but it's my view of what is now acceptable and what isn't. Or maybe it's the worship of our own bodies. A lot of us, I think, struggle with that in different ways, whether it's by constantly forming and shaping and transforming our physical bodies into the way we want them to look, by way of working out or by way of aggressive diet. And there's so many diet plans out there that really become the dominating way of your life. Or maybe it's the other side of that coin, which would be just indulging the body. My body is my God, and if it wants this, I'm going to give it whatever it wants whenever it wants it. And so we consume and we indulge and we consume and we eat and we drink. I could go on and on, but you get the point. Whenever any of these things become what we walk in, what we live for, the dominating directional reality of our lives, and Christ is pushed aside, we become taken captive. As verse 8 says, And begin to look for fulfillment in these things that are not ultimately fulfilling. And so Paul reminds us, walk in Christ. Live for Christ. Just as you received him, continue to walk in him. And here's why. The reason you should continue to walk in Christ is found in verses 9 to 15. And that is... That in the work of Jesus, he has already given you everything you need. And if that is true, the result will be that you will ultimately find true fulfillment in him. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So in a sense, he's warning against philosophies of the world. He's also warning against false gods. And by saying he is the fullness of deity, by saying that he is the one in which all deity dwells, he is saying he has authority over all these other sort of spiritual ideas that people have out there. Some in our, some in our culture today dabble in different sort of forms of spirituality. Maybe some of you, I don't know. There are those who dabble in the celebrity realm with this Kabbalah over the last number of years. There's a trend toward finding inner peace through dabbling in Buddhism. I read just the other day a a very surprising statistic to me that the percentage of people in the Western educated world who still believe that astrology has significant implications for your life is actually very high. It's like in the 40-something percent. That the movement of the stars and planets and moons and suns around the galaxy 
really do affect your disposition, your temperament, and the events of your life. To all of those, and to all of you that may struggle or dabble in such things, here's the word of Colossians 2. Jesus has authority over all spiritual powers. Why would you settle for a lesser form of deity when you can go right to the top? Especially when those lesser forms are errant and misleading. But you know, I don't think that that's the problem for most of the people in this room. Dabbling in other forms of spirituality. It might be for some of us. But I think the problem for most of us in this room is that we have convinced ourselves that our own opinion, our own approach to life, our own philosophy is superior to all others. I mean, this is the logical end of cultural relativism. Cultural relativism is the belief that all truth is relative to the beholder, that there aren't objective forms of reality, that what the beholder wants to be true is true. And when that fast-forwards itself, and by the way, that's, that's the sea we are all swimming in right now, in the Western world, in this time, in this place. And the pressure is immense along those lines. The truth becomes what I want to think, what I want to do, how I want to live. And in the ultimate act of arrogance, we become our own gods. But here, we see that objective reality is defined by a person. Jesus. And in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. So continue to walk in him. He is in authority over all spirits and all religions and all philosophies. So continue to walk in him. He's even in authority over you and what you want to do and how you want to think and what you want to do in your life. So walk in him. Listen to what he's done for you. By way of a reminder. Verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in the middle of all of this live for him, walk for him type of language, we have this really sort of bizarre expression about circumcision. Does that strike you as bizarre? Remember what circumcision is in the Old Testament. Circumcision is a physical sign that a male was part of the covenant community of God. And even in the Old Testament, we see it used as a metaphor for spiritual belonging to the family of God. Moses talks about a circumcision of the heart. Paul takes that reality here and he says very plainly, Jesus peeled away the dead that was you. You were dead in your sins and you've been brought to new life. And this is symbolized or shown in your baptism. 
So for those of you that haven't been baptized but you're claiming to be Christians, here's a great motivator for you. What you proclaim in your baptism, in Colossians 2 and in Romans chapter 6, so when you put your faith in Christ, Jesus becomes united to you and you become united to him. And as you go under the water, this symbolizes your spiritual death. You are dead in your sins. Just as Jesus went into the grave and was dead. And when you come out of the water, you rise to new life in Christ. Just like Jesus rose from the dead three days later and came out of the grave. It was the miraculous power of God that did this, that rose him from the dead. And it's also the miraculous power of God that did this, that rose you from the dead. And that's what Jesus did for you. That's what you proclaim in your baptism. But consider with me the other things that Jesus does for you in this text. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. He brought you from death to life. He's changed your life as a result of that. He's canceled your debt that you had against God because of your sin. And he conquered death and the devil, humiliating all the spiritual powers of this world as he triumphed over them. And because of all of these things... You can live for him and expect that you will find true fulfillment there. You don't need to go someplace else. He did all of this. Most certainly, he can provide for you in your most basic needs and even beyond that toward a fulfilling life. You only get one life. And if you live it rightly, one is enough. We don't need Jesus plus anything for a fulfilling life. You don't need Jesus minus anything for a fulfilling life. So walk in him. And we might rephrase it like this. You only get one life. And so... If you walk in him, one is enough. Many years ago, a young man lay in his bed dying. His mother believed him to be a Christian. And she was greatly surprised as she walked through the hallways of her home and heard him shouting in his bed one day, Lost! 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 She threw the door open, broke into the room, and said, Son, is it true that now that you are dying that you have lost hope in Christ? And he said, No, mother, no. It's not that. I have hope beyond the grave, but I've lost my life. 24 years I've lived and done nothing for the Son of God, and now I am going my life has been spent on self. I have lived for this world, and now while I'm dying, I've given myself to Christ. But I've lost my life. I don't know about you, but I do not want to get to the end of my days and say, I wish I had to do it all over again. None of us want that. Some people live well. And some people don't. What's the difference? 
Some people die well, and some people don't. What's the difference? This last year, I lost a very good friend of mine. Her name was Catherine Reynolds. She was bright. She was driven. She was an absolute joy to work with. She was one of those exceptional people that you come in contact with that could succeed at just about anything that she does. She, we had this saying sort of behind her back that anything that Catherine touches turns to gold. You've probably met some people like that. When Catherine was in her 30s, uh, she rose very quickly in a large staffing firm in Boston called Winter Wyman. She became a vice president there and spent her 30s and 40s uh, in a very successful and lucrative career staffing the tech sector throughout New York and New England on the executive level. But one day, Catherine realized that she had become a slave to her job, a slave to her money, and to her desire for success. She was a Christian. She was confronted with the reality that though she believed in Christ, that she was not walking in him. And the constant pull of her lifestyle was making that difficult to do. So she took a rather drastic step. She quit her job. She walked away from a substantial amount of money. She enrolled in a master's program, became a social worker, and served actively in her church throughout her 40s and into her 50s. Now she was in her 50s. She was diagnosed with cancer. And after fighting cancer for two years, she decided to stop treatment. And as I sat with her in her living room, we recounted the many difficult aspects of life. She had actually called me over that day. She was a couple weeks from dying. She called me over that day because she couldn't get out of her chair. My office was close by. I was five minutes away, so I came over and helped just to lift her out of the chair. And we sat and we talked, and she recounted to me the difficult parts of life and, and the joyful parts of life. And she kept taking stock again and again and again of all the wonderful things that God had allowed her to experience and to do and to see and all the ways that she was blessed. And I asked her if she had any regrets. And she said she had a couple. They were minor in scope. But she kept going back to the wonderful joy that she had in her relationship with the Lord. And I asked her if she was scared. And she confidently said, no. Because I've been walking with somebody. And I'm going to see him shortly. And two weeks later, she died. Everyone wants to live well. Some people are able to. Some people aren't. What's the difference? Everyone wants to die well. Some of us don't even think that's possible. <laughs> Most of us don't face our mortality until we're near the very end. But you can live well. And you can die well if you realize that you only have one life to live. 
And if you walk in him, one life is enough. Let's pray together. Lord, we catch glimpses of the greatness of Jesus in this text. We've experienced glimpses of his greatness in our lives. And we worship you and we praise you. And we confess to you that it is so hard to continue to walk in him sometimes. There are so many temptations, so many things vying for my affections, so many things that I could reorder my life around. And we pray today, Lord, that for those of us who need to reorder our lives back around a walk in Christ, that we would do just that. That we'd be captive no longer to these varying ideas of life or philosophy, Lord, but that we would be found directionally oriented in him, walking in step with him and finding great joy and fulfillment along the way. We pray these things together. In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen.